Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, my lovely listeners. It's Tuesday, and I have a delicious date and some Earl Grey. I should clarify, the date that I'm talking about is the edible kind. The brown and deliciously chewy variant. I actually don't think there's a good way to make dates sound appetizing. Goodness. Brown and chewy, yeah, sign me up stories, yeah. (laughs) But I digress, as I listen to the rain tinkle off my roof and record your next story. I'm getting quite good at cancelling out the rain. I wonder if you can spot it. Right now, though, it's so cold, and this Earl Grey is warming me up from the inside so well. And do you know what else warms the soul? A great story. Today I have Down Here by Michael Whitehouse. A story involving a man off his meds, love gone awry, and the account of a madman. Or is it? We'll find out in this two-part episode. Rest assured, the next part is on the way. For now, grab yourself a hot beverage, I'd suggest a tea of some sort of course, turn off those lights, turn up the sound, and get ready for something different. Down here. Down here. Those were the words my friend whispered to me that night. And though a year has passed, they still fester in my mind shapeless and meandering like a blinding fog. When I entered his house, the light at the front were off. Outside, the weather was still, the air thick and muggy, as if waiting for a breath. It seemed as though the summer had been building towards that event. That evening, stifled, sweat-drenched, sleepless nights, one after the other, We just needed a little rain to clear the air. Forecasters warned us that we were in for a lot worse than that. But they had been wrong. So often that many in our little suburb did not listen. I was one of them. I had received a phone call from Alia an hour earlier. It had been a while since we had spoken. A couple of years, in fact. When I answered the call, there was a momentary silence before she spoke. Her words trembled with nervousness. I put this down to anxiety. She probably thought I would yell at her, considering everything that had happened before. But now I know there's much more to it than that. After a brief exchange of reluctant pleasantries, we finally got down to the root of the phone call. David. Her voice said quietly, Eric needs you. Those were the last words I expected her to say. Two years previous, I had cut both of them out of my life. Alia and I had been in a relationship, albeit in its early stages, but I cared for her deeply. Eric was a close friend. I need not tell you of what went on between them. It was too painful then. It still is now. Why would Eric need me? I asked, feeling the old resentment, the festering betrayal 
still burning a poisoned hole somewhere in the back of my mind. A slight crackle of interference hummed over the line. He's sick. We broke up a few weeks ago, and he won't get help. I've tried to get through to him, his parents too, but he won't listen to any of us. And you think he'll listen to me? What makes you think I'd want to help him anyway? Please, David, put everything aside for a minute. If you can't do it for Eric, do it for his parents. Alia was right. Eric's parents had always been good to me when I was growing up. My own parents were pretty cold, but Eric's had always welcomed me into their home with open arms like a surrogate son. At first, I wasn't sure what help I could be. But after what Alia told me, David had been suffering from delusions and refused to seek medical help. It shouldn't have come as a surprise to me. Eric had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia several years previous. It had been a rough time for everyone who knew him. After spending nearly a year in a psychiatric ward, he was released back into the community. Everyone rallied around him, and in time, with medication, therapy and support, his symptoms became manageable. As long as he stayed away from booze and drugs. It looked like he'd been able to live a normal life. Things had obviously changed since then. Alia sounded desperate, and when she finally told me that she had split up with Eric a few weeks earlier, that softened the blow to a degree. If Eric didn't have her, then at least he could not hold that over me. I am ashamed to admit it, but where love is involved, pettiness seeps through the marrow. It gets into your bones. As it turned out, Alia had tried to phone Eric earlier that night and check in on him. Although they were no longer an item, she still wanted to make sure that he was okay while his family was out of town. She had promised Eric's parents that she would check in on him a couple of times while they were away on an important business trip. When she knocked on his front door, Eric refused to let her in his voice sounding manic and confused. I'm afraid he's going to kill himself, Alia said, the pain in her voice evident. The fact that she still cared so much for him stuck in my throat like a jagged lump of ice. And yet, I was unable to resist the pain in her voice. She was asking me for help, and there was a satisfaction in that. Not something I am proud of, but there, nonetheless. Bolstered by this, and giving into what little affection I still had for Eric, most of it from memories of us playing together as children, I did as Alia asked, and headed over to his parents' house. The big storm weather forecasters had predicted still had not hit. We were warned that when it did, we were likely to see 100 miles per hour winds, which would bring with it damaged roofs, falling trees, and power cuts. Driving for 10 minutes to Eric's house, I looked at the sky which was a deep purple red, with night about to fall. Above, the clouds moved swiftly 
like sea foam on a torrent, while down at ground level things were deathly quiet. Pulling up outside of Eric's family home, I got out of my car and was immediately struck by the smell of ozone in the air. I had always loved that smell, and the charged feeling only present before a storm. But in the back of my mind I knew I could not hang around for too long. Hopefully, I would get back to my own place before the storm hit. When I reached Eric's front door, I expected to knock. But as I raised my hand, the door opened slowly. There, standing in the light of his hall, was my old friend. His black hair was longer than I remembered, reaching down to his jawline which was covered in stubble, and his eyes were red, as if he'd been up all night or crying, probably both. His unshaven face stared at me in disbelief for a moment, and before I could so much as muster a hello, Eric reached out and wrapped both arms around me. He held me close and let out a short whimper, as if overcome with emotion. The smell of tobacco and sweat from him was strong and sickening, and immediately those smells conjured up an image of Eric awake for several nights, smoking, pacing, and trying to figure out some horror delusion. It's so good to see you, David, he said, letting me go and ushering me inside. I've missed you. Deep down inside, I still sheltered resentment towards him for stealing Alia from me. But seeing him in such a state of distress, I felt the older feelings of care and friendship returning to me, like blood flowing to a limb long gone to sleep. A tingle, then a surge of emotion. I had forgotten just how much I had missed Eric, too. His parents' home was a good size, a four-bedroom townhouse. Eric's mother had made a tidy sum as a real estate agent, and so the street they lived on was one of the more affluent in the area. Since Eric's breakdown, he'd been living with his family, but they were away on a business trip for a few days. I suppose they needed to get on with their lives as much as anyone, and that had left Eric to delve deeper into his delusions. I followed him down the hallway, and as I did so I noticed that the cellar door was open slightly. A solitary light bulb glowed at the foot of a flight of stairs burrowing under the house. As I peered down there, Eric turned to me and reacted quickly to my curiosity. He reached across and pushed the cellar door shut, and as he did so, a draft caught the light bulb dangling below. It moved slowly like a pendulum, catching wooden beams and boxes with its light, spreading shadows momentarily before the door clicked shut. How have you been, Eric? I asked, walking through the doorway into the living room, slumping into an armchair. He didn't answer me at first. He reached up with his hand and rubbed his forehead pushing his long hair against his eyes as if in pain. Alia phoned me. That was enough to get his attention. He looked up at me as I sat across from him in a wicker chair, which I knew was once his grandmother's. We stared at each other across the tiny space between us. Outside, 
The clouds swirled and closed in, visible through a large window which looked down on a sloping hill. You know why we broke up then? Eric didn't take his eyes off me for one second. As if he were searching for a tell. Perhaps he was frightened that I was now entangled with her. Yeah, I know. I answered, looking him straight in the eye. He scratched the stubble on his cheek. Are you two a thing now? I laughed. <laughs> it was a ridiculous question. After everything she and Eric had put me through? <laughs> no, we're not. And we won't ever be. I'm here because I don't want your parents to come back from their trip to find you swinging from a rope. There was a silence between us. Eric looked at me through thin strands of hair. Alia thinks you're suicidal. Are you? I took off my jacket, placing it next to me. I... The hesitation told all. Christ, Eric! What are you thinking? I was getting agitated. I had hoped that I would come and see him and find that Alia's claims were... exaggerated. But his sullen expression, the fact he had not washed for days, and the look in his eyes. There was every chance I would have to phone an ambulance and let a psychiatric ward deal with him. You don't understand, David. You can't. Try me. I moved to the edge of my seat, clasping my hands. Eric, I'm here to help you. Believe me, I wouldn't be here if I didn't have to be. Sighing, Eric rubbed his eyes as if to rid himself of tears or tiredness. Perhaps both. Just promise me you'll stay away from Alia. I don't think I could cope. And I could? You don't understand, David. I'm on the edge here. One push and I'm finished. I have no interest in her. She left me for you, Eric. You're best done with her. We both are. Now, are you going to tell me what's been happening or what? Have you been taking your medication? A look fluttered across Eric's face. Guilt. Shame. Helplessness. Take your pick. There's your answer then. I was relieved that there was a solution. Where are they? You need to start taking them to help you balance out. You know that. It's not the medication, David. He now gazed across at me intently. It's... You won't believe me. Something then tapped against the window. Eric recoiled back in his chair, his eyes wide with fear. What's that? It was almost dark and something outside was attracted to a lamp which sat next to the window. It's just a moth or something. Is it? Eric asked. Well, yes. I assured him as the indistinct shape now moved on. What else would it be? Oh, God! Eric started whimpering, <laughs> bringing his hands up to his mouth. He stared at the rich red carpet at his feet and shuddered as if a great anxiety were trying to escape from inside. Seeing Eric like that, I could not help but feel pity for him. The illness had robbed him of his mind in the past and now it was threatening 
to do the same again. Eric, please, just tell me what's upsetting you. Maybe I can help. At first, he seemed unresponsive, but after fetching him a glass of water, he finally gave in to my requests. His only stipulation that I had to be open-minded about what he had to tell me. Sitting forward on the edge of his chair, the night now in full effect as the wind began to howl outside, Eric told his tale. Everything was fine up until a few weeks ago. Things seemed great with Alia. My parents were really pleased because we were talking about getting a place together. I think mum and dad feel it's time I try and get back out on my own two feet. With Alia, anything seemed possible. I... I'm sorry, David. I know it's not fair to go on about her to you. I just mean that I've been stable for a good while now, and I was ready to move on with my life. Every day I go for a long walk. It gets the endorphins going. Helps my mood. The doctor says exercise is critical for mental health, and I've really felt that. It's made a big difference. I go for a walk and listen to a podcast. Joe Rogan, usually. Or Duncan Trussell. That walk is something I look forward to each and every day. But on that day, about three weeks ago, it was different. I just finished listening to something on my phone when I came to my usual spot, just next to Kings Park train station. Now, normally, I walk back up past the primary school and up towards home, but something caught my attention. I know it sounds weird, but I thought I could see smoke coming from the railway bridge. From the street on top, at least. I mean, you ever looked at a road on a hot day, and you see that haze coming off of it? Well, it was like that, but there was a kind of black fuzziness to it. Like, like some of it was transparent and the rest, not. I thought something was burning, so I walked across Kings Park Avenue and ended up standing at one end of the bridge. When I got closer, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. There was no traffic around at that time, but I swear to you, David, I saw this black haze in the middle of the road. There was no fire. It was just sitting there on top of the road surface, about three feet high. Looking around, I was alone with it on the bridge. I started to walk towards it, and as I did, things got stranger. I could hear my footsteps, but they sounded sort of muddied, deeper, and stifled somehow. No echo or nothing, like I'd walked into a small room. I looked up, and the sun blinded me for a second. It was brighter than before, but I swear, it was like I was looking at everything through water. You know how it bends light? Then, the black haze, smoke, whatever it was, it started moving off to the side. It mounted the pavement and then reached the wall above the train station. It started moving. I swear to God, David, it started moving like a person or an animal or something, like it had hands. It climbed over the wall and disappeared over the edge of the bridge. There was another silence. I guessed that Eric was waiting for me to react, but 
I didn't know what to say except, Eric, you were hallucinating again. That's all it was. You need to take your medication. Eric looked at me with pleading eyes. No, it wasn't a hallucination. I swear, it was real. And this is what's been on your mind? Eric calmed for the moment and sank back into his story. As soon as it disappeared under the bridge, everything went back to normal. And I ran home in a panic. I thought just like you do now. I thought it was just a hallucination. But, David, I was still taking my medication then. That made things worse. If Eric's medication was wearing off, or he was relapsing, there was no telling how bad he would get. I had seen him at his worst years before. It took him and his family years to get over it. Eric, I said, not sure what I was going to say next. Let me finish. I need to get this off my chest. I wish I'd been able to leave what I saw at the back of my mind. But over the next couple of days, I started to obsess about what I'd seen. I'm not doing a very good job of putting it into words, but I keep thinking about the haze coming off the ground and the black smoke inside. Worse, I couldn't stop thinking about how it climbed over the wall like it had arms. You went back? I asked, knowing the answer before I'd even asked the question. Something tapped against the window again. Eric looked at the sheet of glass, his face drained of color. The outside world was now deep, abyssal black. Orange streetlights from the city were the only reprieve. Sweat dripped down my friend's forehead, and his mouth began to tremble. Eric, look! Standing up, I walked over to his side, and pulled the tall lampstand over to the glass. There, a large moth bumped against the glass, feverishly trying to reach the light. See? It's just a moth. Nothing to worry about. Can you be sure? Said Eric, slumping back into his chair, looking exhausted. Moving back to my chair, I sat down ready to continue the conversation. What happened when you went back to the bridge? Uh, I couldn't help myself. I had to see if it had just been all in my head. And what did you see? Nothing. I saw nothing. Well, there you go, Eric. It was just a one-off incident. I'm sure once you take your... Eric, cut me off. I saw nothing. But I heard something. The delusion had obviously taken full hold of my old friend. And I worried that it was becoming more likely, as the storm closed in, that I would have to phone an ambulance to have him committed or sectioned. What did you hear? I said, hoping that by talking through it, I could persuade him out of his obsession. I got to the bridge. It was raining, but not too heavy. There was nothing there, just a couple of parked cars and someone walking with an umbrella on the other side of the street. Part of me was delighted that I couldn't see anything, but another part, it wanted to know more about the strange thing on the road. When I reached the section of wall where the thing had climbed over, I hesitated for a second. The wall was too high to peer straight over, 
but it was just above one of the arches where the train lines run through. I stood there for a moment, waiting, just as I had convinced myself that it was all in my mind. I felt that same strange, oppressive atmosphere, like the sound of the world had been deadened. Then, I heard a voice. It came from under the bridge and said in a horrid whisper, Down here. I was terrified. I can't convey how sinister it was, but I felt a strange compulsion to do as it said, or asked. I'm not sure if it was a command or a request. Down here. What did it mean? Was it telling me there was something under the bridge which I had to see? Or was it whispering that phrase for some other purpose? I struggled against the urge to follow, knowing that to give in to a hallucination would be such a huge step back for me. It would jeopardize my state of mind, letting the illness back in. So, I came home. But with each step towards my mum and dad's house, the thought that it wasn't a hallucination tugged at me. That I'd witnessed and heard something incredible. Those thoughts wouldn't leave me. And so, by the next day, I knew that I'd have to return. I'd have to find out what it was without facing it, without putting myself in danger. I hoped that I would find nothing. And so then, I could be sure that it was all in my head. Rain now joined the wind outside, tapping the glass furiously, like a thousand unseen fingertips. Looks, Looks like, like that, that storm has arrived. My heart sank a little. I had hoped to avoid driving home in it, especially given the weather warnings. I knew I would have to leave soon, but I was gripped by Eric's account of his hallucination and wanted to be sure that he would not do anything silly once I had left. Just, Just a, little a little longer, I thought. Eric looked out at the water, dripping down the outside of the glass. You should go, David, before this gets worse. It's okay, Eric, please. At least tell me the rest of your story and then we can chat about how to get you back on the right track. I went back to the bridge the following day, but this time I took a camera with me. My DSLR. I wanted to see if I could capture an image of whatever that thing was, so I waited until about 2pm. The place is always quiet at that time. No school kids running around on their lunch break, and no one else coming and going from their work. I got to the bridge and... He trailed off for a moment, turning his attention to the window, with the rain now lashing at the house outside. There was a look on his face, just a flicker, as if he thought he saw something, before shaking his head slightly and whispering a few words to himself. It's nothing. I never heard what it was, but it had all the hallmarks of someone reassuring themselves that all was well with the world, even though trouble clearly brewed. Composing himself, he continued. At first I stood where the thing had climbed over the wall, just waiting to see if anything was said, but all I heard was a train moving underneath and stopping at the station before heading off to Glasgow Central. So I walked down to the station stairs and took a couple of shots of the stone arches from about halfway down. I'd never been afraid of that place before, 
We used to play around there as kids. Remember? I mean, Kings Park train station can be a little isolated, but apart from that, in fact, I'd always enjoyed getting the new town train on my way home from town. But something was different about it. Looking at the stone arches, I could see where the trains passed under the bridge. But I realized that that was not where the haze would have hidden. On the embankment, directly beneath that part of the wall, was another half arch, which was covered by overgrown thorn bushes. There's no train line through there. You know what I'm talking about. We climbed down there a couple of times when we were kids. Remember? I laughed. <laughs> that was something I had long forgotten about. But it was true. We had climbed down there once. I remembered being egged on to run across the train tracks. When we had gotten to the half arch, we found it filled mostly with soil. But there was a pretty big space inside. It was dark and spanned the width of the street above. Once inside, you could stand up. It felt like another world in some ways. When Eric and I had been kids, we had built countless dens around King's Park and found several places away from prying eyes. Those were secret places where we would visit our crowd of friends feeling like a group of bandits in their hideouts. That thought was exciting, but we didn't frequent the half arch under the bridge very often. It was too dark, too cold and damp. I think we were about 12 at the time, and I remember we found some smudges in the soil which our friend Stuart swore were footprints. I guess we only went back once or twice after that, and when we found more markings in the ground, we decided we didn't want to run into the owner down there in the dark, away from the world. That, and when the trains passed through the main archway, which we were about a foot of solid stone away from, the place vibrated like hell. The noise was deafening. I remember thinking I could feel my insides moving as the trains passed. It was not a pleasant sensation. Did you see anything in the half arch? I asked. Not at first. Eric scratched at the stubble under his chin. I took two pictures and checked them on my DSLR. I could only snap the opening of the half arch as it's further away on the other side of the train tracks. There was nothing unusual about the photos, so I turned to walk away onto the platform to see if I could get a better view. The train station was empty. Again, I took a picture on the edge of the platform, but all I got was the blackness of the opening under the bridge. A train neared, and I heard the high-pitched whine of the tracks before it reached me. When it stopped, a few people got out. Not many. Then, the train continued on its way far down the line towards Glasgow Central. When I turned to look at the archway once more, I was struck by what I saw. A form of some kind, peeking out, glaring at me from the archway. A transparent haze with something black, like smoke or mold, at its center. Quickly, I raised my camera and took a picture as it moved back under the bridge. And then, it was gone. Let me guess, I said. When you looked at the picture, there was nothing there. A wry smile crept across Eric's face as the storm, wind, rain and all was now in full effect outside. He stood up excitedly and rushed out of the room. Moments later he returned, camera in hand. With a click, 
The camera powered on, and a dull glow emanated from the LCD screen, uplighting Eric's face like a macabre gargoyle as he smiled down at his work. Here, Eric said, take a look for yourself. Handing me the camera, he sat back down in his chair. The excitement in his face now, diminishing, replaced once more with worry. I looked down at the LCD screen. It was indeed a picture of the half-archway under the station bridge. At first glance, I could see nothing. But as I zoomed in, sure enough, there it was. A shape of some description cast in shadow. It was difficult to make out. In fact, it could have been almost anything. This is your ghost. Ha! <laughs> a ghost! Eric proclaimed. Who knows? Maybe that's exactly what it is. Maybe it isn't. Maybe it's something we're not meant to see. And for some reason, I was unlucky enough to cross paths with it on that day. Something which usually stays out of sight. Now, it doesn't want me to go on telling people about it. You're putting far too much weight on a blurry image, Eric. It could be dirt on the lens, or an insect moving quickly in front of the camera. No! Eric was getting angry. Look at it! He stood up and practically leaped over to me. Look at the shadow cast across it! That's from the bridge. Whatever it is, it was there, and it's under the half-archway. The wind battered against the window, the glass reverberating, and with it a flash of lightning across the sky. Eric turned to it for a moment, then returned his gaze to mine, standing above me. You should go. You don't believe me, and this storm is going to get worse. It's not that I don't believe you saw something, Eric, but look at it objectively. Either you saw something otherworldly that can't be explained, or you hallucinated, which has happened to you before, before your medication needed tweaking. Which seems more likely? It's nothing to do with my schizophrenia. It has everything to do with that thing under the bridge. His voice trailed off for a moment as if a distant threat made itself known in his mind. David, it spoke to me. It said, down here. It wants me to go somewhere. I can feel it. Have you been back to the bridge since you took the photo? He shook his head. No, but I've no need to. What do you mean? I asked, worried. I don't think I've ever been alone since the day I took its picture. Not truly. You mean you've seen it elsewhere? Not exactly. A look of frustration swept across his face. He started to pace up and down, wringing his hands as he spoke. It hides. It hides in the dark. I don't think it can last long in the light. I think the day I saw it in the sun, and the haze around it, I think it might have been burning. Burning? Come on, Eric. Snap out of it. Let me prove it to you, David. Come with me to the bridge tomorrow, once the storm has passed. If there's nothing there, then I'll concede it's in my mind. And if there is something, then maybe we'll be the first to come face to face with... I don't know what. Exactly. But it could be monumental. When someone is caught in such a delusion, trying to persuade them out of it can be a thankless task. I had to change my strategy. 
Okay, Eric. Tomorrow we'll go to the bridge, on one condition. Name it. You start taking your medication right now. Eric reluctantly agreed to my terms, and I watched as he took his medication, pill by pill. I knew how the drugs worked. It would be some time, perhaps even weeks, before they would start to affect his system and bring him back to Earth. But the earlier he took them, the sooner he'd be back to his usual self. After that, he assured me that he would be okay. My promise of going to the bridge the next day seemed to have lessened his feverish behaviour. He actually thanked me now, as now he did not feel so alone. After that, he then walked me to the front door and we said our goodbyes. Tomorrow, we would see what we would see, and I hoped that it would be reason. And this is part one of the intriguing tale of Down Here. Your author and all credit of this story goes to Michael Whitehouse. Just brilliant. Do you believe Eric? Or do you think he's out of his mind? In more ways than one. What would you do? If it were me, I'd be bringing cameras, torchlights, and maybe another buddy. There's no telling how Eric would react. Just in case. <laughs> so, that was part one of Down Here by Michael Whitehouse, and I'm really loving the story so far. Michael has such a fantastic way of luring you in, and it's some of the most interesting dialogue that I've come across. He has a way of making it easy to read, and quickly characterizes the three main people in the story. Looking forward to the next part, and I hope you are too. Oh, and I've noticed some more iTunes reviews headed my way. You guys and gals are fantastic. Seriously, thank you so much. You put a bounce in my step every time just from those lovely reviews alone. And thank you so much to all of you lovely listeners who are reaching out to me via email, saying hi, sharing your own stories, research, and recommendations. You guys and gals are brilliant. And I love hearing from listeners. So stick with me tomorrow for part two of this creepy-licious story. And as always, till next time.